All right. Good morning, everyone. Um, everyone can hear me okay? Excellent. All right. Good morning, everyone. So it's an incredible source to be able to uh, to be here with all of you this morning. So once again, Baruch Hashem, as Mr. Shulman mentioned, we have two more classes. So I will still get the opportunity to end off with Sefer Tehillim. But what I would like to be able to do with you today is focus a little bit on Asara Betebes. And the reason why I think it's a unique opportunity to do this, this year is, first of all, it's Wednesday, and Asara Betebes is only two days away, but also because this year we have a very unique situation where Asara Betebes falls out on Erev Shabbos. And whereas normally in Halacha, we are exceptionally reticent to ever go ahead and establish a fast day on an Erev Shabbos, this year we have it. You know, I, I, so I'd like to use this as an opportunity to speak a little bit about Asara Betebes and to speak about the peculiar, na- peculiar nature of this day. I'll come back to the Erev Shabbos piece in, in just a moment, but let's begin with number one on, on your sheet. So the Shulchan Aruch says, Chayovim lehis anos betishabov, o beyudzain betamos, o megimo betishrei, o baasara beteves, mipne dvarim haraim shiirubahem. So the Shulchan Aruch writes that we have an obligation to fast on the 9th of Av, the 17th of Tammuz, the 3rd of Tishrei, and Asara Beteves because of the terrible, calamitous events which occurred on these days. So the truth is, most of the days mentioned in the Shulchan Aruch are very familiar to us. Tishabav, destruction of the 1st and 2nd base Hamikdash, 17th of Tammuz, the breaching of the walls of Yerushalayim, Third of Tishrei is Tzom Gedalia, the assassination of Gedalia ben Achikam, which to a very large degree ended Jewish autonomy, and Asara Beteves. Now, Asara Beteves, interestingly enough, is one of these days where very often we're not exactly clear as to what exactly are the events that we're fasting about. So what's interesting to note is Chazal really have two different interpretations or understanding of the severity of this day. If you take a look at number two, the Gemara Masechas Megillah says, "Desanya Ma'isa betalmi hamelech shekines shivim ushnayim zekinim v'chnisan b'shivim ushnayim batin." There was a story, a story of King Talmi. King Talmi was a Greek ruler, and King Talmi assembled seventy-two elders, and he went ahead and he sequestered them in seventy-two individual rooms. Now, he did not reveal to them as to why he was sequestering them or why he was gathering them in the first place. And he went ahead and he came over to each of them. And he said, And he said, a very simple mission for you. I want you to write for me the Torah of Moshe, your master. So this, of course, becomes known as the Septuagint. So interestingly enough, so King Talmi was, you see, what's fascinating to note is, you see, we are so used to living in a time of translations, interpretations, right? Remember, an art scroll really gets, really gets the most incredible yeshikoach for this, for bringing Torah pretty much to every single language, Every single language, right? Isn't it an incredible thing that we live in a time today where you could be totally Hebraically illiterate and yet you could learn Kala Torah Kula. You want to finish Shas, you want to finish the entire Talmud, but you can't read a word of Hebrew? No problem. You want to go ahead and finish the entire Chumash, not read a word of Hebrew? 
no problem. Language is no longer a barrier to learning Torah, which is just, it's mind-blowing. That this, is the, this never happened before throughout Jewish history. Throughout Jewish history, if you wanted to go ahead and learn Torah, the first thing you required was a mastery of Lashna Kodesh, mastery of Hebrew, or, or for Gemara, mastery of Aramaic. Without that, learning is a no-starter. Understand the times that we are privileged to live in, where even if the person is totally, totally doesn't have any Hebrew skills, Aramaic skills, you can learn anything and everything you want. So Tommy comes along. I'm sorry, let me just shut this off. Excuse me. So Tommy comes along and Tommy says, you know what? I would like a Greek translation of the of the Chumash. So he gathers 72 elders. Now he sequestered them. So why does he sequester them? Tommy was a smart man. He understood, you know, one of the hardest things. There, there, there are two challenges when it comes to translating the Torah, Right? Challenge number one, challenge number one is that often Hebrew, Hebrew is a very, what we call Lashna Kodesh, because modern Hebrew is even different than Lashna Kodesh, what we'll call Biblical Hebrew. Biblical Hebrew often does not translate well into other languages, which is why sometimes, and we've seen this in Tehillim, where David HaMelech, again, which is poetic Hebrew, it just doesn't translate the same way. And we try to translate certain psukim in the Chumash, and it just doesn't really come out right. That's problem number one. Problem number two is that remember we have we have what we we'll call sister Torahs. We have Torah Shabbat or Torah Shabbat or Torah Shabbat Torah Shabbat. We have the written law, and then we have the oral tradition. And remember, we also know that you can't understand Torah Shabbat the written law without the oral tradition. We know this. For example, the Torah tells us ayin tachas ayin, an eye for an eye, which sounds like again sounds like it's taken right out of Hammurabi's code, right? An eye for an eye. You blind someone, they blind you. Well, know, that's not the halacha. Ayin tachasayin, the Gemara explains, means monetary damages, compensatory damages. So you can't learn a Torah Shabbat without a Torah Shabbat. So here's what Tommy knew. Tommy knew if he came to the Jewish community and he gave them an order, translate the Torah. So they kind of would have conspired together. When I say conspired, meaning they would have worked together to present the translation that incorporates the proper interpretations. Tommy wants an unadulterated translation. He just wants a straight translation of the Torah. So the rabbis can't work together, otherwise they'll conspire. So what does he do? 72 sages, therefore again, 72 versions, right? Put them, sequester all of them and get them to write their own translation. So the Gemara says, a miracle occurred. And what was the miracle? I'll tell you the rest of this outside. The miracle occurred, the Gemara says, and they all translated the Torah, and they all made the same exact changes. They all made changes. Now the Gemara goes through, we're not, we're not gonna go through it, but I'll just give you some of the examples of the changes. The opening Pasuk of the parsha, opening Pasuk of the Torah. Bereshis bara elokim es hashan es so, so again, how do we translate that? In the beginning, Hashem created the earth and the heavens. So interestingly enough, if you don't have any background and you look at this, you could also translate that Pasuk as Bereshis Baralokim. Bereshis created God. That there's another deity called Bereshis, and that deity called Bereshis created God. Well, remember again, the rabbis want to make sure that they don't give Ptolemy any fuel for this polytheistic fire. So instead, they changed the opening verse. And instead of writing it, Bereshis Baralokim, they wrote, 
Elokim bara bereshis. In the beginning, or God created in the beginning. In the beginning. Uh, other examples. Now the truth is, other things they changed, interestingly enough, are interesting. For example, the Pasuk says, Na'ase adam bitzalmenu kidmusenu. This, this is in, again in the Genesis narrative. So God says, let us make man in our form and in our image. Who's the us? Who's the us? So remember, Rashi already asked this question. The Gemara asked this question, and the Gemara explains because HaKadosh Baruch Hu was talking to Beis Dino. He was talking to the Malachim. Because remember, God understood he didn't want the creation of man to stir jealousy in the celestial sphere. So it's, by the way, it's an incredible lesson HaKadosh Baruch Hu was teaching us. The best way to get people to buy into your plans is how? Onboard them. Onboard them. You know, there are different, different, different leadership models. So in some leadership models, a leader likes to be heavy-handed. This is what we're doing. This is how we're doing. Get in line or get out. It works sometimes. It works sometimes. But even if it works, you know, episodically, it generally, over time, it erodes the trust that followers have in their leaders. Whereas if a leader wants to do something and he or she works to onboard his or her followers, let's do this, let's try this, even though, again, the leader knows what they're going to do already, they know what they're going to do, but they take the time to onboard. You know what? I have a great idea. Let's make man. Let's make man. We'll make a partnership, a gishaf, we'll make a business out of it. We'll make man. Who, who, who's, who's we? Who's we? No, no, one. there's no we. HaKadosh Baruch Hu's making man. So remember again, we have Rashi, we have the Gemara, but the, the, the Chachamim were nervous if they were to write, let us make man. They were to give this version to Talmi. Again, once again, it would reinforce his polytheistic theological inclinations. So they change it to Ese Adam. I will make man in my form, in my image. He gives a whole of this. So this probably about, interestingly enough, one of, one of the fascinating ones they changed was in the list of kosher, non-kosher birds, they took out the bird chasida. Chasida, right? They took out that bird. Why did they take out that bird? Interestingly enough, Ptolemy's wife was named chasida. So they were concerned that if they're going to put in the Torah that Hasida is treif, Talmi's going to take that as a slight against his wife. And you know, it didn't take much for the tyrannical rulers of yesteryear to do something horrible to the Jewish people. So the Gemara goes through all the different changes they made. Why is this important? Because the Gemara Chazal identified when did this occur? Anasara B'Teves. When did Talmi go ahead and when did Talmi go ahead and gather the 72 elders to translate the Torah? It happened on the 10th of Tebes. Now, what's interesting to note about this is, okay, it's fascinating, but what exactly about the Septuagint, about the translation of the Torah by the 72 elders, what exactly about that has a tragic component to it that ultimately, again, requires a fast day? So there's two, there's two primary approaches. Number one is the idea that when the Torah was translated and given to the nations of the world, there was like, before this event, the Torah was ours. Now, not that we as a Jewish people have a problem sharing our Torah and our heritage and our legacy and our ruchnius with the world. In fact, remember, our mandate is to be an Arla Goyim, is to be a light unto the nations. That's our obligation. But there was something almost 
almost like as if we were violated, that there was something that was that was personal to us that was taken, taken forcibly by the nations of the world. There was a traumatic, there was a traumatic event that occurred when this translation took place or this writing took place. Therefore, it was a fast day. But there's something else I think that's occurring of that's much more nuanced. What's happening here? You know, when, when you begin to see that the Chachamim, that the elders had to go ahead and kind of modify their writings and their translations, what was occurring over here was the need for the Jew to bend to the pressure of the outside world. Right here, Torah was given to us by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The words that are written in the Torah Kedosha come from the Ribbono Shel Olam. They come from the Ribbono Shel Olam. So do you understand that? See, we sometimes don't realize this. Every single time you open a Chumash and you read a Pasuk, you learn Torah, those are words from the Ribbono Shel Olam. We often say, if only God would talk to us. God talks to us all the time. God gave us five books of conversations. Every single word in the Torah Kedosha is from the mouth of the Ribbono Shalom. And so this notion that like we had to bend them and change them and adapt them because someone else was going to corrupt them, there was almost like a little piece lost of ourselves. You know, you ever have a situation in life where you have to, you have to bend, right? And you have to, bend is the wrong word, but you have to... What's the right word? This is the problem of being on Zoom and being muted. Right? If I was in class, I would have had already 57 suggestions about which word I should use. Right? But you know, sometimes like, you know, as you get older and you realize that you, the world is not as idealistic as you would like it to be, you're forced to adapt. Maybe that's the right word. You're forced to adapt. And there are certain beliefs or hashkafas or practices that I had, that I always thought I would maintain. But now, in this situation, I have to adapt a little bit. I have to adapt a little bit here. And it's the first time you do it, it's such an uncomfortable feeling because it doesn't feel right. Like, I know that what I'm doing is correct, so why do I have to bend myself to fit into a world that is sometimes hostile to my ideologies, you know? So it's kind of like to give you like a very simple example. You know, I'm I'm driving home and I'm on the New Jersey Turnpike and the sun is setting and I didn't daven mincha. So what has to happen? I have to pull over by the side of the road to daven. So what happens most times? So again, you know, it used to be they would person would go into a phone booth and you know sit there in a phone booth having a conversation with a kaddish baruch Hu for for seven minutes. Now no one knows what a phone booth is, but but you know, so you take out your cell phone, you you you, you go ahead and you you know you hold it on your you like you're having a conversation or you put your hand and then you think to yourself, why 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 am I doing that? Why, why, why am I pretending that I'm having a phone call? Why don't I just daven? Why don't I just daven? Baruch Hashem, I know I'm in Gullus. I know I'm in Gullus and I'm in Diaspora, but thank God I live in a country with freedom of expression and freedom of religion. Why, why is it just because I'm a different religion than the majority of everyone else that I feel like I have to pretend I'm on a phone call in order to daven mincha. Now again, granted, you don't daven shmonasri in the middle of the parking lot, arms flailing, crying out in kavana, disrupting traffic. That's not religiosity. That's hubris and arrogance. Your religiosity should never impact those around you. But again, we all have those moments where I change myself 
in order to accommodate the greater society or greater reality around me. And then every once in a while I have this moment like, oh, why, 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 do I, why do I have to do that? That's what's happening over here. What a tragic day it was when the words of the Ribbono Shalolam had to be changed because some despot by the name of Ptolemy decided that he wanted his own Greek version of the Torah. And what a tragic day it was when we had to take the most pure and pristine words that exist on the face of the earth and the rabbis, the great sages, had to twist them and adapt them so that someone else shouldn't pervert them further. That's tragic. When you have to take something that is objectively holy and good and you have to adapt it and twist it and change it, so it should not be perverted by another, that's a sad day. That's a sad day. So that's the first interpretation. The more classic interpretation is as follows. If you take a look at number three, the Pasuk in Zechariah says, actually take a look at number four, the Pasuk in Zechariah just simply talks about the Tzom HaRavi'i, Tzom HaChamishi, Tzom HaShavi'i, Tzom HaAsiri. So the Gemara number says, literally again, the fourth fast, the fifth fast, the seventh fast, the tenth fast. So the, so the, the Pasuk in Zechariah says, when Mashiach comes, Emir Hashem, these fast days are going to be turned into Yamim Tovim. So the Gemara number four says, what is this Tzom HaAsiri? What is the 10th fast? Za'asara B'Tebes. The 10th fast actually refers to Asara B'Tebes. What happened on Asara B'Tebes? Shebo Samach Melech Babel Al Yerushalayim. On the 10th of Tebes, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babel, this is first temple era, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babel, laid siege to Yerushalayim. Shene'emar, Bahi Devar, okay, he goes on, the give us a fine. So therefore, if you take a look at number five, so the Mishnah Bura comments, Vasara Betebes, Shebo Samach Melech Babel, Nebuchadnezzar Harasha Al Yerushalayim, Vevia Bematzor Bematzok, Umizan Nimshachachorban. So again, we know, th- so therefore, in the first temple era, in the first temple era, the siege began on the 10th of Tebes, the destruction of the base, so that siege obviously lasted a good number of months, because think about it, from Tebes, to Av, so the fast, so the siege itself lasted a good number of months, and then after that, again on the ninth of Av, the Beis Hamikdash is destroyed. So according to the according to the Navi, according to the Navi Gemara's interpretation, ultimately again Asara B'Teves is when we fast commemorating the siege laid by Nebuchadnezzar, which was the precursor event, the beginning of the destruction of the first Beis Hamikdash. So the Abu Draham in number six makes an interesting observation. He says. So th- th- this is incredible. In general, we know that fast days, with, with, the, with the exception of Yom Kippur, don't occur on Shabbos. When I say don't occur on Shabbos, meaning that if they occur on Shabbos, we push them off. We push them off. Now, Asar B'Teves never falls out on Shabbos. However, Listen to this. Tiabujum writes something amazing. See, today we have a fixed calendar. But Tiabujum writes something, and, and with a fixed calendar, with a fixed calendar, so Asar Batavis can never fall out on Shabbos itself. But it can't fall out on Shabbos. So the Abu Jaham writes 
that before the calendar was fixed, remember again, which means that they used to rely on witnesses who would see the new moon, come and relate that they saw the new moon, and ultimately again would give testimony. Based on that, the Basin would declare the new month. So the Abu Joham writes something amazing. The Abu Joham writes that before the calendar was fixed, if witnesses would have showed up and declared Rosh Chodesh, and Asara Beteves would fall out on Shabbos, we would fast on Shabbos. We would fast on Shabbos. Fast on Shabbos. So either Asara Beteves falls out on Friday, which is still a calendrical possibility now, or as we know, or before the calendar was established, and Asara Beteves could fall out on Shabbos, they would even fast on Shabbos. Incredible. That does not apply to any other fast day, right? Tisha B'Av falls out on Shabbos, we push it off. Tainas Esther, push it off. Asar B'tei, everything else, we push off. Yet, amazingly enough, there are only two fast days, which if they fall out on Shabbos, we observe. Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, and Asar B'tei. Now, Yom Kippur, I understand. Yom Kippur is a biblical fast day. It's a Daraisa. Furthermore, again, Yom Kippur itself is also called Shabbos. But what is this idea? What is this, what is this severity of Asara B'teves? The Asara B'teves ultimately again would be observed if, even if it were to fall out on Shabbos. But understand, let's leave aside Shabbos, because, right, because Asara B'teves can't fall out on Shabbos anymore. But it falls out on Erev Shabbos. It falls out on Erev Shabbos as it does this year. Yet we don't go ahead and push it off. We don't mess with Asara B'teves. We observe it whenever it falls out, even on Erev Shabbos. Now, just to illustrate to you how strange this is. The Gemara says, you know, we know that before Mashiach comes, Eliyahu Hanavi arrives. That's the Mesor, that's the tradition we have. Right? So Eliyahu Hanavi is one who comes along to announce the arrival of the Mashiach. The Gemara says, Ein Elio ba ba'arve Shabbosos. Get ready for this. Elio Navi doesn't come on Erev Shabbos. Wild. Wild. Elio Navi doesn't come on Shabbos. So why doesn't Elio Navi come on Erev Shabbos? Why doesn't he come on Shabbos? The Gemara here, the Gemara says, people are too busy. <laughs> the Gemara says, people are too busy. Erev Shabbos, I think Rashi is especially like on winter Shabbos, says Elio Navi's not going to come, right? Elio Navi doesn't come on Erev Shabbos. People are too busy preparing for Shabbos and Erev Shabbos. And if Elia Hanavi comes, it's going to cause an incredible hardship. Who's going to have time to get ready for Shabbos? Elia Hanavi doesn't come on Erev Shabbos. You understand what that means? So we'll delay Messianic arrival because it's not convenient for people to have Elia Hanavi come on Erev Shabbos. So Elia Hanavi, Hanavi won't come on Erev Shabbos, but yet, Asara B'teve, it's not true that having a fast day on an Erev Shabbos is not the most convenient thing. It's not the most convenient thing. Erev Shab- Granted, it's a short day, but Erev Shabbos is a frenetic day. There's an incredible amount of activity that occurs. There's so much that goes on back and forth. So at the, at the, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you would think that just like Eliyahu Navi doesn't come on Erev Shabbos, so too we push off a fast day past Erev Shabbos as well. That's what I would have thought. But yet again, that's not the halacha. The halacha is that ultimately, again, Erev Shabbos, Shabbos excuse me, Asara B'teves remains. So the question becomes, why? Why? What is it about this fast day? All right, if, if Tisha B'av falls out Erev Shabbos, no, we can't have Tisha B'av and Erev Shabbos. Tisha B'av, Tisha B'av is the most severe fast day. 
I mean, rabbinic fast day, right? It just, it just, now again, Yom Kippur doesn't calendrically fall out on Erev Shabbos. But Lamaitz, again, we, we don't have any other facet that we allow on Shabbos, Erev Shabbos. Yet the Abu Juham says that Asar Batavis, whether it falls out Erev Shabbos or Shabbos, you would keep it on that day, we don't push it. Why? So I want to share with you a couple of different approaches, but you're going to see really point, well, it's really a number of different opinions that kind of all point in the same general direction. If you take a look at number seven, in the Sefer Yaros Devash, and I think by understanding the Erev Shabbos dynamic, by understanding the Erev Shabbos dynamic, ultimately again, of, of Asara Beteves, we really begin to understand Asara Beteves itself. So take a look, number seven, V'yomahu kasha Yisrael, L'ma'od Yisrael miyom chorban abayis, Kites ba'av enodoch Shabbos, V'ilu yud teves l'fi kviyas kanmonim, so the Aros Devash comments, he says, it would appear that Asara B'Teves is even more severe, a more difficult day than Tishabov. Why? Because Tishabov is not Docha Shabbos, right? We don't allow Tishabov to fall out on Shabbos. Yet, if Asara B'Teves were to fall out on Shabbos, we would not push it off. We would observe, we would fast on Shabbos for Asara B'Teves, just like Yom Kippur. So we see from here that obviously the, the calamity that we mourn on Asara B'Teves is worse than the calamity we mourn on Tisha B'av. Again, because Tisha B'av, if Tisha B'av falls out on Shabbos, like it has the last a number of times the last couple of years, we push it off till Matzei Shabbos Sunday. Nidcha. Nidcha. Everybody loves a Nidcha Tishabov. Right? We push it off till Matzei Shabbos, Matzei Shabbos Sunday. But yet, Asara Beteves, if it were to fall out on Shabbos, we would fast. From here, you see that the calamity that we mourn on Asara Beteves is worse than the calamity of Tishabov. What does that mean? The calamity of Tishabov is the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. The calamity of Asara Beteves is... The siege is the siege of Nebuchadnezzar. So how can you compare the two? So look what the Aras Devash says. He says, Because the beginning is always difficult. The beginning is always difficult. So the Yara was actually amazing. He says this, this, this phrase, because the beginning is always the most difficult part. Now, what, is, what, what does that mean? So take a look at number eight. This is from the Sefer Siach Yitzchok. And he says, he explains this in a little bit greater depth. He says, why is it that Asara Beteves is considered to be stricter, more chamer than all of the other fast days? He says, We have a principle espoused in the Gemara, literally, that the beginning of a calamity is the most intense. This, by the way, just, just, you know, just to give you the context of this, the Gemara in Mesechas Tainas, which is what he's quoting over here, asks, why do we observe the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash on the ninth of Av? 
we really should observe it on the 10th of Av, right? Because at the end of the day, we know historically, the Beis HaMikdash was set aflame on the 9th, but it burned through the 10th. So we really should observe the 10th of Av as the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, to which the Gemara says, adifa. It is the beginning of the destruction that really should be commemorated. So watch this. You know, generally, we are more taken by what he calls the end of the destruction than the beginning of the destruction, right? Because it's usually by the end of the destruction that we see the full scope, right? When destruction begins, rarely do we actually see it or fully understand it. It's only when destruction, only when the flames fully engulf the base Amikdash, do we really understand it. He goes on, he says, Mishum Shesham Munachas Asiva Laparanus, Umashekora Akhakahi Totsa Alas Khala. So look, skip down to the second paragraph. Veshalahamchish is Ze, Imhahezbesh Shalagon of Eliolo Pianzatzal. So he quotes over here of Eliolo Pian, who gives an incredible marshal. Kasav Bekohalas, he quotes over from Kohalas, Kilo Yeda Adam Es Ito. A person does not know his time, doesn't know his time of his death, because we are often like fish who are stuck in a net. Now listen to this. His of Elio, Shadag Choshev Shasov Shalomagia, Kashemotsim Osomehamayim. The Inu Yod, Yodea, Shasov Shalom, Haya Kasher Nechaz Bemitsuda. So listen to this. A fish, a fish. When it's when it's caught in the net, the fish assumes that when is it's when is when does the fish realize that it's caught? When the fisherman pulls the net out of the water, so then the, then the fish realizes, ah, oh, okay, it's done. It's been a good run, but now but now I'm done. I'm done. But in reality, in reality, that fish may have been actually stuck in that net for a much longer period of time. Isn't it a profound idea to think about it? The fish often only realizes that he's caught when the fisherman pulls the net out of the water. But it could very well be that that fish was in that net for hours beforehand, maybe even for days beforehand. It's a big net. The fish has been swimming around in that net thinking that life is great, everything is perfect. But meanwhile, it's actually been caught for days. For days, right? The end was clear already for days. The fact that later on the fisherman pulls the net out of the water, that's just the result of the fact that the fish was already in the net from earlier. So, Again, what Ravelio Lapian goes on, he says, you know, sometimes in life, we only realize that situations are problematic when the problem is clear and apparent. But we sometimes fail to recognize the challenge of our situation when the challenge is a bit more soft and nuanced. Just like the fish only realized, right? If only the fish would have realized that it was stuck in a net when the net was still in the water. Maybe the fish
Chavish could have worked Chavra. We've got a problem over here. Let's let everybody chew a little bit. Let's try to get through the net. Or could we do this? Could we do that? But they never realized it. So they thought everything was hunky-dory. Everything was just fine because, hey, we're in the water. We're swimming around. It's only once the net was pulled out that they realized that there was a problem. Rav Elio Lopian says, and, and this, by the way, this is the meaning of the Pasuk in Kohalas, a person doesn't know his end time. Just like fish stuck in a trap. What is Shlomo saying? What a, what a, what a depressing Pasuk, right? That what, my whole life, I'm like a, like a fish in a trap waiting for the Rebbe to pull the, the net out of the water. No, Shlomo is saying, he's talking about life. That so many times in life we swim around like everything is just fine. No problems, no problems. Meanwhile, there are many, there are a lot of problems. There are some significant problems. I'm just not paying attention to them. I'm just not being attentive. So I swim around with a big smile on my face. Everything is great. And then one day what happens? Someone yanks the net out of the water. The problems become dramatic, pronounced, and unavoidable. And like, I'm shocked. Oh, where, where, where did this come from? How did, how did this happen? I never knew there was this problem. You never knew this was a problem because you chose to swim around in total ignorance. You chose to pretend like there were no problems. You know, you see this happening all of the time. This happens all the time with children and parents, right? Where children, children engage in negative behaviors. And then a child does something and a parent says, I can't believe it. I never saw it. So sometimes, sometimes a parent might have just been, a child might have hit a lot of things. But sometimes a parent chose to ignore signs, chose to ignore signs because nobody likes to acknowledge problems. No one likes to go and acknowledge that maybe my family is not normal. No one likes to acknowledge that maybe my child is having struggles or challenges. No one likes to acknowledge that. Just like people don't like to acknowledge that there are problems in their marriage. People don't like to acknowledge that there are problems within themselves. But then you could ignore your problems. You can, you can. And, and many of us like are, we have like PhDs in problem ignoring solutions. Incredible. But one day someone yanks the net. Well, one, one day the net comes out of the water. And when the net comes out of the water, I can no longer ignore the challenges that are my life. So the net comes out of the water with my kids. The net comes out of the water with my marriage. And the net comes out of the water with me. And one day again, I must face the music. And I must go ahead and look at what has occurred. So what, 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 what does this mean? So, okay, so therefore, so what we, what we have over here is, I understand, so the, the siege, Asar Beteves is the siege of Yerushalayim. And the siege of, what, what is the siege? So by the way, think about the metaphor that Leo Lopian is, what's the siege? Right? Nebuchadnezzar is outside. He's outside. And what are we? We're, we're, we're inside. We're, we're in Yerushalayim. What are we like, says Leo Lopian? We're like the fish in the net. The fish in the net. Now the truth is we're swimming around, we're in Yerushalayim, we're walking around Mamila, everything is great, having Shabbos lunch at the Waldorf, right? Everything is fine, right? The, the net, it's true. Nebuchadnezzar is outside the walls, but we're totally content and happy inside Yerushalayim. What was supposed to happen when Nebuchadnezzar was around Yerushalayim? What was supposed to happen was the fish were supposed to get nervous. And the fish were supposed to say, let's get 
our act together before things become worse. Let's wake up and smell the coffee. Let's stop ignoring our problems. Let's stop, stop brushing everything, uh, sweeping everything under the rug. Let's stop pretending that everything is okay when it's not. Let's go ahead and face the hard reality that my kids aren't in order. My marriage isn't in order. I'm not in order. Our society is not in order. Let's face the music and let's go ahead and get things right. And let's try to engage in some course correcting activity, try to right the ship and get things on back on the right course. That's what was supposed to happen. That's what was supposed to happen. Take a look, by the way, something amazing, because there's another fascinating confluence of events, which is, you know, Sassar Bateves falls out this year, we know, on Friday, Erev Shabbos, Parashas Vayigash. Parashas Vayigash. Let me show you what happens in this week's parasha. The Torah says in number nine, Remember again, in this week's parasha, we read of the dramatic story of Yosef revealing his identity to his brothers and the beautiful and really, really heartwarming and heart-wrenching story of the reunification of the family of Yaakov Avinu. And so the Torah tells us that, now the wording over here is very interesting. Yosef fell al tzavare. Tzavare means necks, plural. He fell on the necks of Binyamin and he cried. And Binyamin cried on Yosef's neck. So take a look at number 11. Number 11, so the Gemara says, first of all, what does it mean that Yosef fell on Binyamin's necks? And what does it mean that Binyamin fell on Yosef's necks? Why do you have to even bring in the neck at all? <coughs> Excuse me. There's no need to bring in the neck, right? Just say they cried. They, they embraced and they cried. What do you have to bring in? So the Gemara says something amazing. The Gemara says, I'll give you the background to this. The Gemara says the neck, we see this in Shira Shiram already. The neck ultimately, again, is a metaphor for the base Hamikdash and the Mishkan. So, right, just like the neck holds the head, so, so too the base Hamikdash holds ultimately again the glory and the head of Klal Yisrael high. So the Gemara says something absolutely amazing. The Gemara says, Amr Belazer, number 11, Amr Belazer, Bacha, Bacha Ashneim Mikdashim, Shasidin Lios Bechalko Shal Binyamin. When it says that Yosef cried on Binyamin's necks, what it means is Yosef prophetically saw the two Bate Mikdash, the two temples, which would stand in the tribal area of Binyamin that would be destroyed. And Binyamin saw prophetically the Mishkan, the tabernacle, which would reside ultimately again in the tribal areas of Ephraim and Menashe, of Yosef, and that would ultimately be destroyed as well. So you see what's happening over here? Binyamin, Yosef cried over Binyamin for the two Bate Mikdash, which would be in Binyamin's tribal area and be destroyed. And Binyamin cried for the Mishkan, which would be in Yosef's tribal area and would be destroyed. And Rabbi Cheskel of Kazmir, number 12, says, why is this happening now? Why, 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 in other words, 
Why they remember again? Th- there's been so much that's gone on. Why are they crying? Why is Yosef crying over the two Bate Mikdash? And why is Binyamin crying ultimately again over the Mishkan? So the great Talmud the of Kazmir says something absolutely amazing. He says, if you look at number twelve, four lines in, Elashadvaram Muzbaran Kach Kiadua Nechrovu Bate Hamikdash Ba'avon Sinaschinam. Satay the rest outside. The Rebbe says something so beautiful. He says, Why was the Beis Hamikdash destroyed? The Beis Hamikdash was destroyed because of Sinaschin and because of baseless hatred. And what did the brothers just undergo? What did they just live through over the last 22 years? Sinaschinam. Baseless hatred. It was hatred that caused brother to turn on brother. It was hatred that caused the brothers to strip Yosef of his clothing and of his dignity and to throw him into a pit and to sell him like a piece of chattel, to sell him like a piece of property. It was hatred that deprived Yaakov of his beloved last vestige of Rachel Imenu for 22 plus years. It was hatred that drove the family apart and it was hatred that ultimately led us down to Egypt, paved the way for servitude and ultimately again would destroy the base. So what are, what are Yosef and Binyamin crying about? The Sadiq said, says something so incredibly beautiful. He says, ultimately again, what they're crying is, is we hope that we can fix this. We see what Sinas Chinam has done to our family. We see what Sinas Chinam ultimately again, what baseless hatred has done to our Mishpacha over the last 22 years. And we see that if we don't get this right, what baseless hatred is going to do to our people in the future, to Bate Mikdash, a Mishkan, millions of lives lost over the millennia, all because of Sinas Chinam, all because of baseless hatred. So in this moment of reunification, the brothers are crying over what was, but ultimately crying because if we don't correct it, unfortunately, we also see what will be. You see, in this moment, in this moment, what the brothers are trying to teach us is the incredible power of addressing things at the source. See, Yosef and Binyamin are crying for what was. It was hatred that drove our family apart. And we see prophetically that if we don't go ahead and get things right, hatred will destroy our people in the future. So what do they do in that moment? In that moment, what they say is, let's stop this. Let's end this right here. That's why if you look at the way Yosef addresses his brothers, it's incredible, right? What does Yosef say? Yosef reveals his identity to his brothers. Ani Yosef It's me, it's Yosef. And what does he say to them? It's not your fault. Tells the brothers, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. You didn't send me here. HaKadosh Baruch Hu sent me here. Really? Really? The brothers didn't send Yosef to Egypt? It wasn't the brothers? It wasn't the brothers who mistreated him? It wasn't the brothers who rugged him? Yosef says three times, three times over the course of his conversation with his, with his brothers, it wasn't you, it was God. It wasn't you, it was God. There's a plan, there's a plan, there's a plan. Don't be upset. Don't be upset. Is that true? Is that true? It wasn't their fault. It wasn't their fault. But Yosef understood 
that what got us here was hatred. So I have a choice. I could fan the flames. I could fan the flames. I can make them feel terrible. And I have every right to make them feel terrible. And I can make them feel like a piece of dirt for how they wronged me. And I could now use my new position of power and influence to visit punishment and judgment upon them. But I don't want to do that. I want to break the cycle. I want to break the cycle. Because our family for generations says Yosef HaTzadik has been locked in a cycle of sinas chinam. It started with Cain and Hevel, went down through the generations, Yitzchak and Yishmael, Yaakov and Esau, the brothers and Yosef. And Yosef says, it stops now. It stops now. Because at some point, we have to break the cycle. At some point, we have to prevent things from evolving. Because if you don't have the courage to identify your challenges proactively, if you don't have the courage to identify your challenges at the beginning, at the genesis of those challenges, and find the courage to proactively address them, they will just spiral out of control. And now we begin to understand the profundity of Asarabateides. What is Asarabateides? Leaving aside Ptolemy, right? What is Asarabateides? Asarabateides is one word, two words, three words. It's the beginning. It's the beginning. That's what Asarabateides is. Did anything dramatic happen on Asarabateides? There was a siege. Did anything change in the life of the residents of Yerushalayim when Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Yerushalayim? Most probably not, 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 not in the beginning, but that was exactly the problem. Because what should have happened was, the moment that Nebuchadnezzar laid that siege was the moment that ultimately, again, Klali Saul should have engaged in a profound level of introspection and to try to figure out what have we been sweeping under the rug all of these years that has led us to this situation. And maybe if we find the courage to confront our demons now, Maybe, just maybe, we could turn this around. Asara Beteves is the beginning. It's the source. And what Chazal were trying to sensitize us to was, don't live a life where you swim around in the net of your problems, pretending like there are no problems, pretending like everything is okay. And only willing to recognize and acknowledge your problems one day when someone yanks your net out of the water. Don't be the kind of person who ignores the challenges, personalistic challenges, familial challenges, spiritual challenges, until you are forced to confront them. Because we all know, those who ignore their challenges until they're forced to confront them, usually, by the time you're forced to confront them, there's usually very little you can do actually about them. If you're forced, just like the fish, right? By the time the fish is pulled out of the water, the fish is, oh, you know what? We're in a net. We're in a net, right? And, and what, 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 so what, what could the fish do now? The fish could do nothing. Say, to be, uh, someone's lunch. You know, that's it. That's it. There's not much you could do once the net is out of the water. Once the net is out of the water, we're, we're, we're done. The goal in life, the goal in life is to become acutely aware of your challenges at the source, at the beginning, anasara beteves, anasara beteves. 
And that's why Chazal said this day is so important that we don't mess with it. So if it falls out on Shabbos, fast on Shabbos. Falls out on Friday, fast on Friday. Because do you know what the message of Asar Beteves is? Take stock of your life. The message of Asar Beteves is look inward. What are my challenges? Let me be honest. So many of us, we don't like to be honest with ourselves because it's difficult to be honest. Because if I'm honest with myself, I'm going to recognize that maybe I'm not putting all of the proper cojos into my marriage. And maybe I made a lot of mistakes with my kids. And maybe I have certain personality flaws that are really detrimental. Are really detrimental. No one likes to really be introspective. Because introspection usually only yields one thing. <laughs> one thing. And that's work. And that's work, personalistic work. And most of us don't really like personalistic work. You know, we like to say, oh, I'm going to work on myself. But you know, it's interesting when you ask most people, like when people say, I'm going to work on myself, it's funny to see what do people do when they work on themselves? I'm going to say more to Hillam. I'm going to say more to him. Now, this is a Tehillim Shir, of course, right? right? So I'm going to say more to him. That's, that's great. Everybody should say more to him. That's not working on yourself. You know what saying more to him is? It's saying more to him. It's great. I'm all for it. That's not working on yourself. Right? I'm going to give more tzedakah. Fantastic. Great. Become a charitable person. Great. Working on yourself is Asara Bateves. Working on myself means I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to look at the areas of my life and where are the nets that I'm ensnared in? Where are the nets? Where are the deficiencies? Where are the problems that maybe I have ignored for too long? I'm going to stop ignoring them because I don't want to be that fish. Do you know what's going through that fish's mind when the net is pulled out of the water? I don't know, but I I would have to imagine that what's going through the fish's mind was, wow, I really should have paid more attention because, you know... You know, last Tuesday when I was swimming around and life was just great, I thought I saw a net over there in the distance. And I thought I saw the fisherman's boat ahead. But, you know, it was so sunny. It was so nice. Life was so good. I figured it was nothing. But, I, you know, had I paid a little bit more attention to that little glimmering of the net last Tuesday, maybe I wouldn't be on Silber's supper plate tonight. You know, maybe life would be a, 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 a little bit different. And the truth is, we say it in a jokey fashion, which Shlomo Melech says, some of us are swimming around the nets, nets of personalistic problems, nets of family problems, marital problems, life problems, career problems, financial problems, health problems, and we're just too scared to acknowledge the net. So we just swim around in oblivion because it feels good while it lasts until someone yanks the net. And once they yank the net, and I can't escape the reality of things. Unfortunately, then it becomes often, too often, too, it becomes too late to do anything. And this ultimately, again, is the power of Asara B'Tevis. And that's why Chazal said, Erev Shabbos you fast, Shabbos you fast. Uh, yes, historically, Asara B'Tevis is the beginning of the destruction. And do you know why destruction occurred? Because our ancestors did not pay heed in the beginning. They didn't pay heed. They didn't, they didn't pay heed when Nebuchadnezzar was outside. So instead, Nebuchadnezzar came inside. And he destroyed, and he pillaged, and he plundered, and he did everything. When we, our avoda on Asara B'Tebes, 
is to take a step back and to look at our lives and to really introspect what's broken, what's not going well, what do I need to fix? And I want to show you something amazing. I'll tell you this outside. In number 13, I'm going to tell you the outside. Golbavich Rebbe asks a simple, a very interesting question. He says, you know, we just said before that Yosef fell on Binyamin's necks, plural, and Binyamin fell on Yosef's neck, singular, right? Yosef cried for the two temples of Binyamin, and ultimately, again, Show what happened. I think maybe we got uh, disconnected. All right, I'll, f- I'll finish it off at least uh, at least with the audio. This way, hopefully, Meretz Hashem will be able to uh, be able to, uh, to to listen. So, Lubavitcher Rebbe says something so beautiful. He explains that that Yosef fell on Binyamin's neck, and Binyamin fell on Yosef's neck. So Binyamin. I'm sorry, are we, uh, did, I, did I lose everyone there for a moment? Okay, we're back. Sorry about that. Okay, so Yosef, Yosef went ahead and, Yosef went ahead and cried on Binyamin's neck. Binyamin cried on Yosef's neck and asked Lubavitch Rebbe, I don't understand. Why is it, why is it that at the end of the day, why didn't Yosef, cry for his Mishkan and Binyamin cry for his Batei Mikdash, right? What's, what, 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 what's the pshat that each one cried for the other? So the Lubavitch Rebbe says something absolutely amazing. He says, because Avas Yisrael, love and compassion for another, requires us to cry for each other's pain. But Lubavitch Rebbe says, you don't cry over your own pain. Instead, what do you do about your own pain? Do something about it. Don't sit and cry over your korban, but try to do something to rebuild, which is an incredibly beautiful and magnificent idea. That at the end of the day, you could cry for someone else's pain. You could cry for someone else's pain. But ultimately, again, when it comes to your own challenges, don't sit back and cry. Don't sit back and lament. Instead, do something to try to fix it. And this becomes the incredible message an incredible importance of Asara Beteves. That Asara Beteves is this incredibly sacred day. And I know that it's not easy to have a day of introspection ever. It's really not interesting to have a day of introspection on a short Friday on Erev Shabbos. But we have to try to make it happen. Because this is what Asara Beteves is. It's the day not to cry, but it's a day ultimately again to take a step back. Asara Beteves is the day when we try to prevent things at the source. Avod of Asara Beteves is to take a step back, to look at our lives, to identify that which is in a state of disrepair, not to lament it, to cry for it, but to figure out how could I address it? What can I do? How can I fix it? I don't want to be the kind of person who swims around in the net of troubles, oblivious to everything that's wrong until one day someone yanks the net. I want to proactively address my issues. I want to proactively address my family issues, my marital issues, my life issues. But most importantly, I want to proactively address my personalistic issues. 
Because I know that there are things that are broken inside of me. And I don't want to wait till someone else points it out. And I don't want to wait until I can't ignore it anymore. I want to begin to address it at the source. This is the power of this Friday. This is the power of Asara Beteves. And this is why Chazal felt this day is so important. That whenever it falls out, we will observe it. Whether it's a Shabbos or like this year, whether it's a Friday, you don't tamper with Asara Beteves. Because the message and the meaning are of too great importance to delay it even by just one day. So we should be Zohar Mirz Hashem over the course of this Asara Beteves to really go ahead and prevent things at the source. To stop crying over the things that are broken, but to try to really proactively fix them. To identify the nets in which we find ourselves ensnared and to figure out a strategy through which we can extricate ourselves from those very nets. To figure out what's broken and to finally devise a strategy to fix it. And in that tzuchos, like the Pasek in Zechariah tells us, that Asara B'teves, as well as all of the other fast days, the Navi tells us, Yihiyu lebeis Yehuda, lesasson, ulesimcha, ulemoadim tovim. That the fast days that we observe now, Amirat Hashem, one day will become days of celebration, of simcha, of holidays, va'emes va'shalom ahivu. Halavayif, we're zochet to Amirat Hashem, use this Asara B'teves in the right way. It's true. Eliyahu HaNavi, won't come on an Erev Shabbos. So it's true that salvation, national salvation won't come on an Erev Shabbos, but personal salvation can. So if Eliyahu Navi is not going to bring national salvation this Erev Shabbos, I pledge to bring my personal salvation this Erev Shabbos. And in the Zuchus of all of us bringing our personal salvation, Emirat Hashem Eliyahu Navi will come to announce the arrival of Mashiach the arrival of national salvation, the rebuilding of the base Hamikdash, and all of us going back to you, Shaim Hirabi Amenu. Amen. Wishing everyone a wonderful day, a meaningful upcoming fast, and a beautiful Shabbos Kodesh. Ha, <laughs> ha,